Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, crew, check it. Dog events are happening. For exhibitors who are able and willing to attend these events, it feels as if our tribe has been reunited once again. Meanwhile, for folks who are continuing to feel safest staying at home and away from crowds, and for folks who are driving long haul between far-flung events, I gotcha. I've been working hard to bring you all podcast episodes that help you feel connected to our larger community and offer opportunities for education and entertainment, no matter how you have managed through this truly overwhelming year. One of my favorite events this year is the monthly virtual Pure Dog Talk After Dark for patrons of our podcast. Anybody can join this fabulous community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking on the Become a Patron link on the homepage. And while you're there zooming around on the site, you might think about checking out our shopping tab too. We've linked dog show vendors from all around the country so you can help support them during this really grueling loss of income suffered due to a lack of events. There's even a swag link that lets you order your Pure Dog Talk t-shirt, sweatshirt, fan case, mask, <laughs> ringside towel, and so much more. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. So check out the links at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm excited. We have a very cool guest today, Erin Sams, who's the principal scientist at Embark, is joining us to talk about ancestry in the Embark panels. And I think that this is something that a lot of us have questions about, you know, how do you establish a breed, all of this kind of stuff. So this is very, very exciting. So welcome, Erin. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is going to be a lot of fun. We're just going to hang out. That's good. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Okay. So when we're talking specifically about ancestry and canines, so this is Embark and these sorts of DNA tests are different than an AKC parentage DNA test, correct? That's correct. Right. Okay. And we're talking about a lot of, we have ancient breeds, right? So we have Salukis and Greyhounds where they have been what they are for a very long time, correct? Yeah, I think we could go a little bit deeper than that and say that 
dog populations and dog evolutionary history is really complex. Right. There's a lot of dogs in the world, and most of them are what we call village dogs. They're just free-breeding, free-ranging dogs that live with human populations, but some of them are pets, some of them are not. They're just, you know, free-ranging and free-breeding. Mm-hmm. And then you have kind of like some of these ancient breeds that you're talking about, Salukis and other, what I think of, and I think many of us think of as land race breeds, right. where these are dogs that are living with humans. They often have a purpose, you know, they're purpose-bred, they're adapted to the region in which they live. Mm-hmm. When I think of these land races, I think of a lot of like the herding and livestock guardian dogs in, say, the Near East. Right. These are very functional dogs. Mm -hmm. And then you've got purebred dog breeds that we are most familiar with in Europe and America. And so a lot of these breeds have been, if you will, created or developed or perfected by mankind to do a specific job. So they started with a desire to point things and they became a pointing breed of various regions, or they came with a desire to herd things. Right. And so some of our newer recognized breeds were talking even in the 20th century, the Toy Fox Terrier, the Buer Terrier that's just been recognized, or some of the ones that were developed in the 19th century, like my breed, the German Wirehaired Pointer, the Doberman, some of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So with these younger, if you will, I'm just using that you probably have a better term for it, these younger breeds, how do you get to a control genome that says this dog is purebred X, Y, or Z? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll take just a little bit of a step back and say, on top of what you were saying before, when you're talking about registration organization and pedigrees, right? there's not a lot of gray area there, right? Like a registration organization decides these are the standards. This is what we are going to determine what this dog has to conform to, to be a registered purebred of this breed. But genetic variation is a lot more complex. You know, within each of those breeds, there's genetic variation across those dogs. They're not clones of each other. They're not genetically identical. So there's variation there. Right. And between breeds, a lot of breeds are related to each other. Because as you're saying, some new breeds over the last century, and even very recently over the last few decades have been, they're new breeds. They've been formed by taking dogs from other purebred breeds and mixing them together and creating these new populations with that existing genetic variation. So it's all pretty complex. And when we're thinking about how do you do ancestry testing and decide, given some random dog that you're going to test, how do you decide what ancestry is the best fit for that dog? What's our best guess or estimate of the ancestry of that dog? So rather than thinking of it from like a single reference genome, we have to think about it as a population. So we have a reference database. Companies like ours, testing services like ours, they use large databases, large numbers of individuals that serve as references for that given population. So for each of those purebred breeds, we have a large number of registered purebred dogs from that breed that serve as references for that population. And so what we're trying to do there is capture as much of that genetic diversity that represents that population as we can. So that anytime we take a new dog and we compare it to those reference individuals, we can see that this dog shares DNA that's very, very similar to those reference individuals. So that's kind of the baseline for what we're trying to do. Okay, so this is going to be a little bit of a squirrel from my questions, but this always happens. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. I chase a squirrel across the More fun that way. So is there a number for that population. And does that number change as you get more dogs? So I raised German wire hair pointers. It's easy for me to reference. Okay. So say you have tested 
I don't know, 50, 500, 5,000, right? So what are we talking about here? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, so there's different levels of inbreeding in each Mm -hmm. of these breeds, which means that there's different levels of genetic diversity in each of these populations. And so if you have a very inbred breed that doesn't have very much genetic diversity, you might need a smaller number of individuals to capture the genetic diversity for that entire population. My classic example is Doberman Pinschers. They're a pretty old breed. They've gone through some serious bottlenecks. And, and this is something that Doberman community is aware of and concerned about. And working with Embark on. <laughs> yes, working with us. And so that's why they come to mind. You know, right. we're thinking about Doberman Pinschers a lot in their genetic diversity. So you really don't need that many Doberman Pinschers, you know, a few dozen or so to capture a lot of the genetic diversity in that entire breed. But when you're getting into more other breeds that haven't experienced as much historical inbreeding, you might need more individuals. And really kind of what we're talking about is the more individuals you add to your reference, just the more accurate you're going to get because the more you can match those individuals that you're testing identically. So the way I like to think about this and describe this is imagine it from the perspective of a pedigree. If we're testing a dog, let's say it's a German wire-haired pointer, since you bring them up, and we have both of that dog's parents in our reference data set, we're comparing that dog directly to a population that includes its parents what's going to happen is we're going to have these really long genetic matches to our reference data set for that individual because we've tested its parents. So we've got these really great references for that individual. So there's going to be very little error in our estimate of that dog's recent ancestry. We have its parents, so we know this is a German wirehead pointer because we've got two really great references for it. But in general, the more individuals you add to that reference database, the more likely you are to have cousins and, and other close, mm-hmm. close relatives to those dogs that you're testing. So you're just improving the accuracy of your assessment of that ancestry, the more individuals you add. So it's it's hard to put a specific number on each of those populations, but there's kind of this relationship between the overall amount of genetic diversity in that population and how many individuals you need to capture that genetic variation. I mean, to me, that makes sense. That makes total sense. And then what you're describing as you test more dogs within a breed, within a population, does that change past results, for example? You know what I'm saying? Like yep. someone tested their whatever breed and it came back as a mix of the foundation breeds and you're like, wait, no, <laughs> you know, right? So where does that sort of thing come in? That's a really good question. So yeah, you could imagine if our reference data set was a little too small. And so mm-hmm. for example, our best estimate of, so let's say you send one of your dogs in and we say, it's around 90% German wire-haired pointer and 10% pointer, English pointer. That happens. Those are very closely related breeds. Sometimes you have lineages of that breed that we don't have in our reference database. So sometimes you'll see that kind of thing happen. But a year later, you come back and we have built up, we've added more registered German wire-haired pointers to our reference data set, and we rerun our algorithms over that data set. And now we're seeing, oh, actually, this dog looks like it's very consistent with just, you know, it's 100% German wire-haired pointer. That ancestry that we were previously assigning to Pointer is now, now we have dogs in our reference data set that are actually better matches for that DNA that we were previously Got assigning it. to the population. So yeah, over time, these things are going to change. And if you're using human DNA testing companies to look at your own ancestry, that kind of thing has happened over the course of the last decade with people's, with their own ancestry results as well. Okay. See, that's perfect. Thank you. Again, that makes sense, but I wanted to make sure to understand exactly and have our listeners be able to understand exactly how that works. Sure. Okay. So, and we kind of touched on this, but let's kind of drill down on this. 
the factors that impact the ancestry results on some of these younger breeds? Is it just the numbers? Is it the length of time? What goes into that algorithm? I mean, the algorithm is fascinating to me. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've already talked about the reference data set itself. You can bolster that and add more individual, try to capture as much genetic diversity as you can there. Other things are kind of like the properties of that population itself. So if we're talking about dogs with a registration body, an official registration body, so purebred dog breeds, are the stud books open or closed? So if you're frequently adding variation from other populations to that breed, if you send in a dog whose one of its grandparents was from a totally different breed, we're going to see that. And it's going to look like that dog is there, you know, around a quarter, this other breed. So are they open or closed? Are there these recent outcrosses to other well-established breeds? If it's closed and you're not seeing, you don't have much of that outcrossing, how long has it been closed? You know, did this dog diverge from other breeds one or two generations ago, or was it 10, 15 generations ago or longer? Mm -hmm. The longer the time you have there, the more time there is for those populations to diverge and, you know, become more different genetically, Mm -hmm. especially with inbreeding, you're kind of pushing those populations to be more different from each other over time. So, you know, the longer they've been separated from other closed populations, usually the easier it is to identify ancestry from that population. Other things are like, can the breeds be cross-registered? There's differences between European and American registration bodies and how certain breeds can be registered here or in Europe or other places. And so if the same dog can be registered in different places with a different label (laughs) in a different population, that can really trip us up sometimes, you know? So like, which of those labels should we be using in our reference data set? And so we're trying to work with these breed organizations and improve these things as much as we can over time. But those are the kinds of things that can trip up this kind of analysis because you're relying on this reference data set, assuming that specific dogs have specific labels or they're coming from specific populations. So that can definitely trip you up. Okay. So that is fascinating. So wire hairs are actually a really interesting sample for this conversation simply because in Europe, in Germany, in the registration system there, their stud book was open well into the 60s. Sure. And so particularly I think about, and I would ask about dogs in frozen semen, older dogs in frozen semen that are closer to that open stud book than it is today. Right. Yeah. So that's a great example. If you take a frozen semen sample from several generations ago. I don't know how distantly we're talking about, but let's say five, six generations in the past. And you bring that forward and you breed a dog with that frozen semen sample. There is, especially if at that point in time that the dog that donated that sample lives, if there was more outcrossing or the breed was still kind of in formation, there's definitely a good chance that if we now have a very well-established reference data set for that breed, you bring that genetic diversity forward it may not actually be present in most dogs in that breed today. And so so now you've got ancestry or DNA from earlier in the population that's maybe been lost over time and you're reintroducing it. And so like, yeah, if we don't have that in our reference data set for that breed, it's going to be called as something else. So like maybe it's most similar to English pointers. And so that's why we're assigning a little bit of ancestry to English pointer in that dog or, you know, something like that. Right. So that can definitely happen if you're bringing DNA our genetic variation in that population forward that that maybe doesn't exist in most individuals in that population. Okay. So that is really, really interesting. And so when you get your Embark result and it says, you know, 10% pointer or whatever, 
because you used frozen semen from the 70s, you should not be panic stricken. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would suggest breeders and fanciers to not get too bent out of shape over a result. You know, consider the history of your breed, consider right. the likelihood that that's just a part of using these reference data sets. And so if you're going to do something like that, definitely try not to be too surprised right. if you get a, be aware. A okay. So then the next question, the follow-on to that is, you know, our Embark DNA swab is cheek swab. Yep. Are you able to if you have frozen semen dating back 20 and 30 years, which some of us do, yeah. are you able to pull your DNA panel from a small sample of that frozen semen? Yes. So it is possible. It, of course, depends on the quality of that sample and everything. But we do this usually as a courtesy to our customers. So those samples will come directly to our lab and we'll do our best to extract the DNA from those semen samples. So yeah, it is technically possible. And we do that on occasion. Fascinating. I love this. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Happy 2021 from Embark. Join us for the first ever Embark Canine Health Summit, a free digital conference for breeders this February 15 to 16, 2021. Top canine experts will feature topics and discussions relevant to breeders of all experience levels. The event will run during Westminster's Fan Appreciation Week in February as part of Embark and the Westminster Kennel Club's commitment to canine genetic health. To register for this free event, go to EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders backslash Embark dash canine dash health dash summit that's a mouthful but you can do it embarkvet.com breeders embark canine health summit haven't tested with embark yet get your first embark for breeders dog dna test for 99 dollars right now when you use the code try embark 99 at EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. That's try Embark99 at EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. Here's another one. And we touched on it. And now I want to kind of drill down on it. When you're making these breeding decisions, is there a way to make the breeding decisions that impacts the ancestry. In other words, if the dog is more tightly inbred or more outcrossed, which of those or does it impact, again, and we're focused still on these breeds that are newer, younger, more recently opened stud book, that sort of thing. Is there a method that actually impacts how that result comes back? I think the answer is maybe, or it depends. <laughs> you know, I love that. For the most part, like that's not really an mm -hmm. issue. So again, if you're talking about a really well-established breed, we have a very large reference data. So let's take Labrador Retrievers. Right? right. Like That's a very established breed. It's a very well-characterized population. And we have super common. So we have tons of, you know, we've tested a lot of them. Right. And our reference data set is pretty comprehensive from a genetic variation perspective. So we've tested labs that are on the lower end of the inbreeding spectrum for that breed and some that are on the higher end. And we've captured a lot of that genetic diversity in that population. So it really shouldn't matter. What that inbreeding is doing is it's some parts of that dog's genome. If the dog is more inbred, 
all it means is that it carries two copies of the same haplotype or the same stretch of DNA right. instead of just one. And as long as that haplotype, that DNA segment is represented in our reference data set, then we're going to assign it to that, the correct breed to lab. Mm-hmm. So, you know, inbreeding shouldn't impact those ancestry results very much in those really well-established populations. But in some cases, I would say they can be correlated. So let's say I'm working with border collies and I introduce working border collies. These mm-hmm. are dogs that, that people occasionally introduce other breeds to, or they introduce randomly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. So I'm going to add some Kelpie to yeah. my lines, right? Because I want to increase, I want to do something with, <laughs> with those right. lines and I'm gonna <laughs> add another breed to it. And so in doing that, what you're doing is you're going to add more genetic variation to that population. You're going to likely reduce the COI overall in that line as you're increasing that genetic variation. And so that kind of introduces this correlation between those dogs are also going to be more likely to come back with ancestry results that better match, say, Kelpie than border cop. Right. <laughs> and so, so now you've kind of created this association between those results not coming back as 100% border collie and lower inbreeding coefficients. When you don't have outcrossing like that, that really shouldn't be an issue. I would say, you know, if it's a really rare breed, it could be, or we're lacking genetic diversity from some lines in that breed, this could happen. So I think the common thing that I think of is like, if we've mostly tested show dogs, border collies is a good example, right? There are show border collies or lines that are mostly used for show. There's some that are just exclusively working dogs. Let's say we've mostly tested show border collies, and now people are sending in a lot of working dogs that do have a lot of this additional genetic variation that we don't have represented in our reference for that breed. Then, yeah, you're more likely to see that, oh, these dogs with lower inbreeding coefficients are actually, we're more likely to assign other non-border collie populations to their ancestry. So you can have those kinds of things happen that it's based on what you have in your reference data set at the time. Mm-hmm. But what you expect is as the product evolves and as you increase that diversity for each of those populations, that that'll go away. Okay. Fascinating. Now, this one is super esoteric and you may not have an answer, but it like tickles in my brain. Sure. So all characteristics are genetic. So pointing is a genetic component, the inclination to point. Okay, so I asked that as a question. Would you agree with that? So I think I take things like this with a large grain of salt. So mm. is there a genetic component to them? Yes. I think it's kind of hard to argue that these things are definitely, they're heritable within these populations. Right. right. You have pointing dogs, they produce other pointing dogs. So you know there's some component of genetic transmission there. You know there's some amount of that trait is heritable, meaning that the genetic variation is actually what's leading to the variation in the trait itself. Mm-hmm. Is it all genetic? I don't know. The answer is pointing is a really complex behavioral trait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there, there could be a lot of things that are also environmental, how the dog is raised, how it's trained, the handler, all those kinds of things can influence how that trait, and I'm using pointing because you mentioned it, but really- Right, you, any trait, pick a trait, right. Pick a trait that's complex. It's not like a simple, just Mendelian, one mm-hmm. gene or one genetic mutation kind of thing. Mm-hmm most of those have some component of environmental variation going on. So yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, if you're seeing a trait like that, that is transmitting over time in that population, that you can measure how heritable, what the influence of genetic variation is on those traits. So yeah. And so we think about people, I call to mind, there was a very famous breeder of English pointers. His name was Bob Wheel. L. Hugh pointers are famous. I mean, 
across the dog world because of their consistency of pointing ability. And he had a very specific breeding process that concentrated that. Okay. And so when we think about the genetic component of pointing or of the eye that a border collie has or the, you know, pick a thing, the desire to go after a badger in a hole, right? We as breeders, so here I'm coming from a breeder perspective, talking to a scientist, we as breeders know that if we select for that characteristic, that trait consistently, it consistently reproduces itself. So from the science perspective, there has got to be, and as you say, maybe there's more than one, some little doodad on some little chromosome somewhere (laughs) that says, right, sciencey here, that says, I smell this, I stand still. Yeah. And it could be something even much more complicated than, than that, right? It could be a lot of different genes or different parts of the genome that are working together to produce that really complex behavior. But as breeders, what you're doing is kind of selecting on that complex of genetic Mm, variation to produce that trait. Okay. So it might not just be one gene. And for a lot of things it is, right? But we're talking about coat colors and things like that. A lot of times it's like, you know, you did this one simple genetic change and now this dog is white. Right. Um, And and if you breed that dog to another dog that carries that same mutation, you're going to get white dog. You know, that kind of thing. It's pretty simple. But anytime I think about things like behavior, my gut feeling is they're more complex than we think, more than we might want to think. But definitely, you know, if you're, you're selecting on that trait, you're applying selection to the genetic variation that underlies that trait. But definitely, that's kind of the thing that's going on in breeding. Fascinating. And just to kind of build on, I had a conversation with Adam not too long ago, Adam Boyko, mm-hmm. one of your guys' founders, talking about kind of the future of where this sort of thing was going. And I would love to continue and will be continuing these conversations because there's so much that we as breeders bring to this conversation that you as scientists can inform and vice versa. Right. And so some of the behavioral traits, not just phenotypical traits, but actual behavioral traits. Mm -hmm. And as we get more and more information about health traits and teasing out some of those complex genetic interactions. The question there is, where do you see the most potential? You know, there's a lot of potential there. I think we're really just in the early stages of discovery in dogs. Right. You could say we're still in kind of the early stages of discovery for some aspects of human biology. Right. Where there's a lot to be done here. But, you know, like the things we're really good at discovery. So when you have, like I was talking about coat color variation, Mm -hmm. right? When you have a single genetic change, that produces an immediate, like it's a fully penetrant in the sense that that genetic change a hundred percent predicts the trait in that animal. Right. Now that kind of thing, they're really easy to discover genetically because you can look at the correlations between that genetic variation and the trait itself and they stick out like a sore thumb, right? So you can say like, okay, every single dog that has this trait has this specific mutation. But when you start getting into some of these behaviors like you're talking about, or things like cancer or cancer risk, dysplasia, dysplasia, allergies, things that are really complicated, they have, the environment plays a large part, things that, you know, include the environment, you know, meaning things that humans are doing, the actual environment, like climate and 
the dog's immediate surroundings, what food they're getting, Mm -hmm. nutrition, all that stuff may play a big part in things like hip dysplasia or allergies or other things like that. And so they're complicated because not all of that variation is genetic. And then when you go just to the genetic part, it's not just one single gene, it's genetic variation across the entire genome often. So we can look to traits like body size. Mm -hmm. In humans, how big we are as humans or how large we develop pretty much everywhere in your genome influences that. Like literally interesting. (laughs) everything in the genome can influence how large you grow as a human. In dogs, in purebred dogs, especially because of the selection that breeders have been applying to them, that variation has been concentrated into a much smaller number of genetic variants. So you can explain 80% of the variance in size in dogs with something like, you know, a handful of genetic changes. So it's like a dozen genetic changes. Mm -hmm. Whether you have a Chihuahua or a Great Dane. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So like the really big differences there, the ones that produce very small dogs or very large dogs, those are restricted to a small number of genetic changes that influence things like growth hormones and stuff like that. Mm. And so that's a good example of how like when you're applying selection to the breeding process, a lot of times you're taking a trait like that that is complex and the entire genome can have a really large impact on it. And you're concentrating all the phenotypic variation into variation across a small number of genes. So I sort of expect that this is kind of what we're going to see as we look more at things like behavior, that they're going to be a little less complicated than they are if you were to look at similar behaviors in other, in humans, for example. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like when we think about behavior in humans, it's super complex. So, you know, I think we're going to start to understand what we're trying to do through that process. As we have more and more dogs, we have more and more individuals that we can look at. And because of our customers, they're telling us and breeders, you know, they're telling us, well, this dog has this trait. You want to look for it. So we can do those statistical analyses with much higher resolution with a larger number of animals. What that allows us to do is start to kind of parse out the smaller effects of lots of those genes across the genome. We can say, oh, well, this genetic change looks like it explains a half a percent of the variation in that trait. Okay. It's not a hundred percent. It's a half right. a percent. And, right. But when you combine it with this change over here, now it's 5%. And so they're not always additive, you know, things can work together. And so what we're trying to do is by building this really large data set and having customers and partners that are very active in this research, we're hoping to understand that complexity more over time and solve some of these really big problems for dog health. Excellent. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. I know this was a little yeah. bit of a crazy morning and you have a meeting to get to. So no problem. Thank you. For thank having you. Me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's great. Thanks. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.